Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Just One More Thing. My name is Norji. Thank you for joining me for this episode. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to um, warn everyone that today's episode will deal heavily with um, the subject of domestic violence, and therefore the conversation may contain elements which could be upsetting or traumatizing to some listeners and or inappropriate for children. The content within this episode is intended for educational purposes, so listener discretion is advised. Domestic violence is a global epidemic that affects a staggering amount of the population. In 1989, uh, um, October was dedicated or um, declared Domestic Violence Awareness Month as a way to acknowledge domestic violence survivors and a, uh, be a voice for its victims. Uh, today, I'm pleased to welcome members of a local organization which has been at the front lines of advocating and fighting for the rights of victims of domestic violence and sexual violence, uh, Women and Children's Horizons in Kenosha. Uh, joining me for this episode is the executive director, Jennifer Payne, and the rapid rehousing coordinator, uh, Kirsten Sova. Thank you for joining me, ladies. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, uh, I want to start basically with, um, if you could both tell me a little bit about yourselves and also um, what your roles are here at the um, Women and Children's Horizon organization. Sure. So, I'll start. I'm Jennifer Payne. I'm the executive director for Women and Children's Horizons. I have been in this role for over a year and a half now, came here from the for-profit sector to work in the nonprofit sector purely for survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and other forms of intimate partner violence. And this agency, I wear many hats, in part business leader, in part coach, uh, service provider, marketer, grant writer, and everything we do 24 hours a day, including our emergency shelter, we are running here. And my job is to oversee all of that and encourage wonderful staff like Kirsten Silva, who runs our rapid rehousing program. Um, so like Jennifer said, I'm Kirsten Sova. I am the rapid rehousing coordinator here. Um, I've been here for a few months. Um, Prior to that, I have always worked with victims. Um, it's just something that I'm very passionate about that I found out that I enjoy doing through college. Um, so coming to nonprofit has been um, a little bit of a change. It's a new sector. Um, specifically at Women and Children's, I do the rapid rehousing program. So we help clients get into housing. Um, and then for up to 24 months, we will help them with rent. Um, so that way they can save for other things and really get on their feet and transition well. Um, additionally, I handle the um, coordinated entry for Kenosha. Um, we're part of the No Wrong Door. So we um, get people onto a list um, so that way if they are homeless we can either help them through our agency or other agencies can help them get housing um how many if you can say how many people make up like the staff here whether it's um uh paid staff or volunteer staff is there like a set number of staff here there is yes so between paid staff and volunteers we have 57 people who work full-time or part-time, mostly full-time, for our agency. Um, I'm going to ask uh, a loaded question, and sure. I, I think that it's appropriate to ask the question, and, and certainly for the benefit of the education of the listener, um, I think it, it's important to maybe start off with this question. What is domestic violence? That's a great question, because a lot of people don't know what domestic violence is. 
And as a result of that, they will put up for with abuse for years. So domestic violence, as a traditional definition, is any conduct that is a pattern of manipulation or control by one person over another. It does not have to be physical. And in many times, it's not physical at all, although a victim will tell you it wasn't that bad. I wasn't hit, right? She didn't hit me. He didn't hit me. They just shoved me. Um, so, but domestic violence encompasses all kinds of abusive tactics that are geared toward controlling another person. That would include verbal abuse, name-calling, emotional abuse, gaslighting, financial abuse, abuse of pets, abuse of property, litigation abuse, so bringing someone to and from court, newer forms of abuse that, that have happened but that we've coined terms around, like reactive abuse, so somebody pushes you around and forces you to react, and then they call the cops on you. And substance use abuse. So someone gets you addicted to drugs, so you stay under their control. Or someone forces you into bad habits as a coping mechanism, and that makes you feel like you can't get help because you're a, quote, addict or an alcoholic. So there are all kinds of tactics around domestic violence that aren't physical at all. The common denominator is that they are means to control another person. And that is a wonderful definition because I think when people, a lot of people, when you say the word domestic violence, they maybe have a specific sort of definition or picture in their mind that that's exactly what it is and it can't possibly be something else. Um, Or that because they've seen someone suffer specifically um, at the hands of like one specific kind of domestic violence, that that's the only thing that exists. So, Mm you know, there's a lot of stigma around domestic violence, especially um, in a in a culture this these day this day and age where there's a lot of like victim blaming right. or um, not taking claims seriously. So, when you said that um, here at 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 the at this organization, is there any um, level where you guys say no, we don't handle that kind of thing, or we don't we won't take that case because it's not, it doesn't meet the a specific no. minimal criteria, or is it? No, not at all. Um, any kind of abuse, even if it's verbal, online, purely, purely online, maybe no contact at all, if someone is feeling that they are being abused, we are going to help that person. And imp- it's important for everyone to know that at our agency, we don't require proof. You don't have to go get a police report. You don't need to show us your medical records. We're not going to ask for an audio recording or pictures of bruises. You may have no visible bruises at all and still be a victim. Um, So there is no minimal level or threshold that the abuse is bad enough. In fact, our agency operates in the opposite direction. We want to stop abuse before it escalates into something that's physical or homicidal. Um, And so... You being the executive director, do you, do you are you hands on with um, each uh, victim that comes into the agency insofar as like walking them step by step through everything that they have to go through, or um, do you essentially sort of um, introduce them to each person that they might have to interact with? Yeah. As far as like Kirsten, you do um, the um, the rehoming and everything like that. So is that how that yeah. works? It it both. We, as an agency as a whole, we are here for our clients, and it's all hands on deck much of the time. 
So if someone at the shelter needs to talk to Jennifer, the director specifically, I'm going to go there and talk to them. Um, but I also want to make sure that our staff who are trained and can work day to day with those individual clients and give them all of the time and attention they need are available too. So we it's a group effort here and we all wear many hats and no client is um, barred from talking to anyone else here. So long as we can get them the help that they need in any way that that happens, we're all here to do that work. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and this is another sort of um, broad topic, is statistics. Mm -hmm. There are um, an alarming amount of statistics um, that are attached to all different forms of um, the umbrella of domestic violence. Can you speak to any of the ones that maybe are more common or possibly um, have more alarming um, rates than maybe some of the others? Yes, I can speak on that. So, and, and our statistics come from the Department of Justice. So every year in the fall, the Department of Justice, the Federal Department of Justice, studies and releases a DV homicide report. We look at domestic violence homicides as an indicator for other types of domestic violence that are happening. The idea being many people will never report what's going on, but we know that domestic violence escalates. So a high homicide rate would suggest that there are higher rates of other domestic violence that haven't yet reached the level of homicide. The According to our last reporting year, which was 2022, the state of Wisconsin is the eighth highest state in the country for domestic violence-related homicides. Kenosha County is the second highest county in the state of Wisconsin for domestic violence-related homicides. In one year alone, our homicide rate increased by 250%. Milwaukee is the first. Kenosha is the second. So it's pretty scary. Well, and also considering that um, the population density between Milwaukee and Kenosha is not right. even close. The fact that Kenosha is number two in yeah. all of Wisconsin is very, very alarming. It's very alarming. And there are a lot of theories for that. Um, no one theory is right. Law enforcement says it's courts. Courts says it's law enforcement. People will say it's general homelessness. Some people will say it's a rise in, in uh, drug usage. Some people will say it's carryover traffic from Lake County and other parts of the country. The fact is none of those things cause someone to commit an act of domestic violence, but they are all barriers in a relationship being healthy, and all of them have at some part in, in those statistics being as high as they are. Um, in addition to some of those more daunting statistics, um, and maybe you can also speak to this, uh, Kirsten, and this is, again, another question that maybe sounds broad or even um, um, off kilter. What is the cost associated with domestic violence? Because obviously, um, we, we look at the sort of the physical and mental and spiritual yeah. aspect of, of the the we'll call it an epidemic, um, yeah. that is domestic violence. What are some of the costs associated with um, domestic violence and w maybe some of the statistics that are associated with those costs? Yeah, I could answer some, but Kirsten, do you want to start with maybe the, the housing costs and the costs that we pay to get people back on their feet? Yeah, I mean, we do pay quite a bit of money um, to help people get out. I know many people, when they are fleeing domestic violence, they're leaving their homes um, sometimes or even most of the time, their abusers are the ones who are controlling that home, who are um, paying for that lease or paying for that mortgage. Um, you know, their name isn't on there. So they really have nothing um, when they're coming here. So, you know, there is a very high um, 
cost in terms of housing um, for you know people who are fleeing domestic violence because most of them probably didn't have a home to begin with because they weren't paying for that and then you know that was another control tactic that was being used um, additionally a lot mm -hmm. of the people we work with are um, they don't have jobs to start out um, so sometimes you know we're helping them get that housing and that stability so that they can get a job um, so that does also increase the um, economic um, support that we are giving to them until they can get a job yeah, because the fact is that when someone's in an abusive relationship, the harm to them isn't just physical or emotional. It touches on every aspect of their life. Lost days at work, lost PTO, lost productivity for that employer, increased medical bills, um, increased insurance costs, the cost to go back to school, the cost for child care. The state of Wisconsin every year spends just under $50 million on domestic violence and sexual assault service providers like Horizons. That money's not all coming to us. It's sprinkled throughout the state. But the state invests that money specifically to help victims all over the state of Wisconsin. And that's not enough, especially for 24-hour programs like ours that run a shelter every single day of the week, every day of the year, including Christmas Eve, Hanukkah, the middle of summer on a 2 a.m. Um, the, the, it's not an inexpensive process. And for our victims to start over, it's an expensive one for them too. That's another reason agencies like ours are helpful because we absorb some of that cost to get them in a place that's healthy and safe for them so they don't stay in an abusive relationship simply because they can't afford to get out. I... And this is, uh, I will admit that um, domestic violence is a huge trigger for me. Um, and I can certainly talk about uh, more about that why. And I'm sure it's a huge trigger for a lot of people. Um, so one of the things that um, I'm curious about for the two of you and also for um, anyone else that either volunteers here or, or spends their time here is the, um, the reality of secondhand trauma. Um, because... A lot of times what ends up happening is you're so um, engaged and so zoned into helping others and getting them out of situations that you almost become um, a machine and you just process all of this stuff and, and get them to where they need to be. And then at the end of the day, um, you, you're kind of left holding the bag, I guess, mm -hmm. um, in, in, for lack of a better term. Are, do you have something here in place um, as far as access to um, mental health or um, trauma-informed care or peer support that you guys get to lean on uh, in order to sort of decompress from all of this really, really traumatic stuff that you see every day? Yeah, I can answer that on behalf of the agency's policies and how our staff operate and the benefits we provide to them. And then maybe Kristen can talk about how you take a break from your work. Um, the agency, uh, with the support of our board, provides an employee assistance plan that provides free mental health treatment that's completely confidential for all of our staff. They can choose to use it. If not, they don't. Um, that's up to them. But that's, that's made available to them for that exact reason. You cannot not absorb someone's trauma when you're dealing with them every day, especially in times when their trauma is at its worst. Now, we don't judge anyone's trauma. Everyone's trauma is treated the same way, and people experience different things. But when you have someone coming literally with no shoes, only the clothes on their back, no money, saying, 
my spouse tried to kill me. What do I do? You can't not absorb that in your life. So we make space for our, our staff to, to talk with the therapist if they want. I am hard and fast on your hours or your work hours. Your off time is your off time. I want you to use it. You're not going to get late night emails. You got vacation time. Please go take it because you can't fill for an empty cup, right? So we do our best to encourage our staff to take a break, decompress, and be personally healthy so that they can do the best work for their clients. But it's also intentional. Um, so we have safe spaces for meetings. We give people the benefit of working from home when needed because this work is very, very hard and can be very draining personally and emotionally. Or worse, you become numb to it, and then you're not treating your clients with the type of severity that they need to be treated. So that's how the policies are in the agency. But Kristen, what do you do to take a break from work? Yeah, so I mean, secondhand trauma is real. There's always that one client or that one person that you go home at the end of the day or the weekend and you wonder... Are they going to go back or, you know, are they going to be alive when I come back in on Monday? So for me, you know, like Jennifer said, when it's my off time, I really try to take my off time um, on the job too. I know if I was having a rough day, if I saw something or heard something really bad, anybody in this agency would be have an open door um, for me to go and talk about it, um, you know, to just take that couple minutes to just decompress. So that way, the next person that I have to talk to, I'm there fully um, and able to help them as much as I can. Um, so I know just the other day too, we had a coworker suggest, um, you know, she wanted to put on a, um, how to do self-care, um, presentation for us. So, um, it's kind of a thing that everybody here is aware of and we do give everybody, um, you know, little tidbits here and there, um, on how to really take care of yourself and, um, just really be there for everybody too. Um, I, uh, I've never openly admitted this on this podcast, but, um, I used to work for the um, Department of Corrections, um, most recently the Division of Community Corrections. So um, essentially anything that an offender has to deal with outside of an institution, um, so probation and parole um, specifically. And, you know, while I saw um, domestic violence cases inside of um, a prison because of a file or whatever that had to be scrutinized, um, it was never easy um, as as a probation agent or even as a um, a supervisor of support staff, um, we would occasionally get um, a, a victim that would walk in and they looked like they had just been um, savagely beaten or abused, um, and they are just they it's they're um, they're bloody, they're bruised, they're swollen, they're you know you said that they don't have shoes on, you know it's at the middle of winter, they're not wearing a jacket or anything like that. And so, you know, I think about that and I think about like, you know, the people that, that I supervised uh, staff wise or other people. And I, I, that's stuff that you can never turn off, no matter how much, um, you know, you talk about it or, or, or um, try to work through it. It's just, it's so ingrained in your brain. And so I always wonder, especially for um, agencies and organizations like, like um, Horizons, um, if you guys had those kinds of things in place, because that that is something that I believe um, can be um, incredibly damaging, whether it's immediate or way down the road, if you don't uh, sort of process the things that you encounter on a daily basis. Um, and of course, that happened. Computer problems. There we go. Um, one of the things I wanted to speak about um, 
along the lines of domestic violence is, and I don't think it gets talked about enough, at least in my estimation, um, are warning signs. What are some of the warning signs that, um, that are apparent or could be apparent in a relationship that um, has domestic violence examples? Sure. I can give you some of them, and then Kristen might, might be able to talk about her experience working with kiddos and investigating abuse cases for kiddos because she would have seen those things on the front lines. Um, things that we that are warning signs would be someone not you get you get a gut feeling. Everyone's got their intuition. Something's not right. Some victims will tend. These are just generalizations. They'll tend to be very defensive of their abuser because they believe that that person is there to help them or support them or their only source of support. They might not show up at events that they used to show up to. They might, if they're being physically abused, their appearance will look different or they'll wear long sleeve clothing in the winter or in the summertime to mask any injuries that they may have. Um, They may be and often are becoming more closed off from their family and friends, which is a common abuse tactic to isolate the victim from sources of support. They might become very aggressive and angry because they don't want to be outed. Um, There are a lot, those are common um, characteristics of someone who's being abused. But again, if you get even a gut instinct and someone doesn't meet all the boxes on the checklist, that doesn't mean they're not being abused. Uh, but those are common characteristics of a victim. But Kristen, what on the what about on the kiddo side, yeah. investigating side? Yeah. So um, prior to this, I did work for um, CPS. So I did see some domestic violence cases come through, um, and you know, kind of similar with kids. Um, you know, they don't want to talk about it. They're very well coached. Um, so if you ask a kid, you know, what's going on at home, and you know, there's a lot of avoidance and things like that. They they know what's happening isn't good. Um, Some kids are super open about those things. And, you know, those are the kids who aren't well coached. So when they are willing to talk about it, you know, you need to be open to hearing them, listening to them, um, because this might be the one chance for that kid to tell you what's going on at home and for somebody to get in there to get help. um, Because maybe the person who's being abused is not able to speak up or doesn't have that chance. Um, So it's very similar in kids, I would say, in terms of kind of what they're doing. you know, kind of too with the long sleeves, um, you know, if the abuser is also abusing the kids, um, you know, they'll put them in long sleeve clothing or um, even if they're dirty or things like that, um, just all those signs, um, just really make sure that, you know, if you hear the kids talking about it, that you're listening to them. Um, yeah. Is it fair <laughs> to say um, that it's more difficult to recognize it in children than it is in adults? Because children don't necessarily have the capacity to maybe um, vocalize what it is that they're going through. Yeah, I think it, it can be. Um, I think that a lot of the times kids, they that's all that they know. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily, if they're not going to friends' houses, they don't know what a normal household is like. They think that, you know, mom and dad screaming at each other is the norm um, and that that's what's happening at their friends' houses. So... They might verbalize it, but they might not be understanding that what's happening is not okay until they start getting out into the world more and more. So it also comes back to how sheltered they are. If if they're not being allowed out into the world to see how things are, then they might not be verbalizing it. So um, it is, I would say maybe it is harder to find it in kids just because 
like I said, that that's what they know as normal. Sure. So they might not know that they need to tell somebody either. So we've mentioned, or rather you've mentioned a couple of different organizations. Um, you said you came from CPS. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned um, Department of Justice before. Right. Um, does, um, does Horizons work in tandem with law enforcement and Department of Justice and the courts, oh, yes. or is it something where you guys sort of operate on your own and then they, um, you clue them in or bring them in as necessary? We are all coordinated, and that is by design. So um, we have members of our board who are, who are from the Sheriff's Department, from Kenosha Police Department, and from Pleasant Prairie Police Department. We sit on several community organizations that are coordinated organizations. There's a child abuse coordinated program. There's a human trafficking coordinated program that also includes hospitals and local colleges. There is um, all kinds of coordination amongst agencies in the Kenosha area, which I would say is unique to Southeast Wisconsin, the level of cooperation and collaboration. Right down to a staff member here who we share with Kenosha Human Development Services, another nonprofit, that their job is specifically to go out and intervene in family situations before domestic violence escalates and get those kiddos and those families the resources that they need. Um, KPD is very friendly with us. If we need anything at all, including some drives by our office because someone's scared, they're here in a minute. So um, we work regularly throughout the week in collaboration with them um, and with several other organizations because that is the nature of the work that we do. When someone comes to us in a state of uh, trauma, it's usually not just domestic violence they're experiencing. They have medical issues. They have education issues. They may have language barriers. There may be criminal court, family court issues, all kinds of things going on at the same time. So we work regularly with other agencies to treat that client and that family. Um, along the lines of the agencies that you partner with and work in tandem with, mm -hmm. um, you know, we talked about some of the um, some of the things that present themselves warning signs, and sometimes surrounding that and the stigma of domestic violence or abuse is people refusing to talk about the um, the profundities that they're going through. So if someone comes here or contacts you and expresses that they are in danger, that they are a victim or they know someone who's a victim, are you, um, are you obligated to contact law enforcement whenever you feel it's necessary or is it something that to honor the victim's um, um, wishes to not necessarily report it because they're afraid of repercussions that you sort of um, warm up to the idea of contacting law enforcement? I am so glad that you asked that question because that is often a myth and a barrier for people coming to Horizons to get help. Our services are confidential. Nobody knows what we're treating, who we're talking to, what services we are providing. The police will never know. We're not going to force someone to go to the hospital. We're not going to tell the next door neighbor. Nobody knows. It's completely confidential here. There is one exception. If someone discloses that a child is being abused or that they are going to abuse a child, um, and that would be physical or sexual assault, we are mandatory reporters. Uh, we have to do that in a way that's respectful and after a lot of consultations with our legal program coordinator and with me as a director, 
it's very, very rare that something like that would happen. And uh, we do tell our clients that up front. But otherwise, you could be a client and no one would ever know. Sure. Everything that we do is completely confidential here. Um, one of the more common sort of, uh, and this uh, drives me crazy, and I'm sure it drives you crazy too. Um, it's a The question is almost cliche and insulting in many ways um, that people ask is, why why do they stay? Why don't they just leave? Why don't they just pack up and leave? Can you speak to sort of the oversimplification of that question and maybe some of the um, reasons why it's not as easy as they um, profess it to um, to be? Yeah. So um, I think the simplest is that sometimes these people just don't have the resources to get out. Um, but going through that, there's also kind of this cycle of abuse where um, things get bad and then they get really, really bad. Um, and then that abuser is all apologetic and then you're kind of in this honeymoon phase. And after things are really, really bad to then go to a honeymoon phase, that's when the victim starts thinking, it'll change. Because when your abuser is telling you, I'm going to change, I won't do this again, it's really hard to leave that. Um, And additionally, it's hard to leave when somebody is telling you that, but then also on top of that, if you are being abused financially and you don't have the money or the resources to leave, if you don't have a car, if you don't have a place to go, if you don't have family or friends who can help you, um, those are other reasons and barriers that people might not leave. Um, I kind of mentioned CPS earlier. If there's kids involved um, where you share children with the abuser, a lot of the times CPS is being used as um, a scare tactic. Well, if you leave with my kids, I'm going to call CPS on you and get the kids taken away from you. Um, so there's just a whole bunch of barriers, and I don't know if I'm, I'm sure I missed a whole bunch, and I'm sure Jennifer can give a couple more too, but... I will share, I think you did a wonderful job, and and I will share personally that the feeling of denial is very real. I will tell you, because many staff here have lived experiences, and I don't hide mine. And this is coming from someone who was a business owner and who represented domestic violence victims in court. At the same time, I was being victimized in my own house. I didn't believe it for a second. He just was mad. He was drunk. He'll apologize. And I denied it for over a year until the night he tried to kill me with the baseball bat and I went running down the street in my pajamas. That's when it hit me. This isn't going to change, right? So some of it's denial. Some of it's, it can't happen to me. I'm not the, quote, typical victim, right? I don't come from that, quote, community of victims. Denial and the cycle of abuse in addition to all of the barriers that an abuser sets up for you, finance, isolation, abuse of kids, threats, victims really become convinced that the unknown is scarier and the unknown is worse. That's where we come in. Horizons is there to fill the unknown and to help them so they they don't have to go back to their abuser. And I'm sure that there are statistics that probably support that maybe there are some um, communities that are, or demographics that maybe are, have a higher rate of domestic violence in them than than others. But I think it's fair to say that nobody is um, immune to the domestic violence, and um, certainly it is a it is a blight that affects on a global scale um, so many people, and uh, it's something that it feels like it's one of those things that we don't. We tend not to look at it um, in terms of color or 
um, race or anything like that. We just look at it as a problem that needs to be solved and eradicated. And I wish, I wish that we approached a lot of things in life this way when it comes to trying to solve problems. But, um, you know, just because you think someone doesn't necessarily fit the mold of someone who you think might be the victim of domestic violence doesn't mean that they aren't suffering silently. Um, so it's nice to know that, um, or not nice to know, but it's, it's, it's helpful to know that, um, people out there who are listening who feel like they might be alone or might be the only person are not the only person and they're not alone. They're not alone at all. Domestic violence does not know any gender, race, socioeconomic status, religion, region of the country, other world. It can happen and does happen to everyone in every demographic. Um, in some ways, people who don't look like the quote typical victim are are in the most danger because they won't get help early on and they become the homicide statistics that we see in the news and on 2020 and they make for you know social media blasting um everybody needs help our mantra here is we believe our survivors no matter where they come from they can and should reach out for help um I don't know if this is me playing devil's advocate, but just in in, in an attempt to sort of get a well-rounded um, discussion here, um, I think it's easy to say that statistics show that domestic violence is a problem that overwhelmingly affects the female population. Um, however, the male population is also affected by this issue. So um, my question um, is, do you think that male victims are being treated with maybe a similar sense of urgency as females? And also, are there resources out there um, in the vein of um, Women and Children's Horizons that um, men can, um, you know, call upon to get help and resources? So um, personally, I think that men are often overlooked in terms of being victims. Um, I think it comes back to a masculinity thing that society has um, kind of portrayed as a whole that, um, you know, men can't cry, men have to be tough men can't be abused. Women can't abuse men or men can't abuse men. But that's not accurate. Um, women can be abusers just as much as men can be abusers. And men can be abused just as much as women can. So I think that is something that is often overlooked in society. Sure. I think if you're looking at statistics, it's drastically underreported. Um, as D DV as a whole is drastically underreported, but specifically for men, it is very underreported. Um, in terms of having men come to women and children's. Um, we do offer um, services to them, just like anybody else. If they are being abused, we're not going to discriminate them just because they're a man. I think our, our name, Women and Children's Horizons, often deters people a little bit, but That's why for... you will hear us yes. refer to the agency even during your podcast <laughs> as Horizons. Sure. And that's intentional because we do not want to lose our male survivors based on the name of this agency, yes. you know. Um, if I could talk about the statistics a little bit. So the statistics for men are on the rise. And it's not because it's happening more necessarily, but because more men are finding safe spaces to speak about sure. what they are experiencing, which is not a bad thing. So back in 2015, the statistic was one in eight men will be a victim of domestic violence. The statistic in 2022 was one in seven. Okay, so so we're going up, um, and I should say on the statistics in Kenosha County as well, 
although the rates are high, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It could also mean that more people are finding safe spaces to speak up here as well. Our male clients, and I know that there are victim service provider agencies who will be screaming at this podcast because they see it's a women's issue. And if we talk about men, that we're minimizing women as victims. We're not. Women are victims. Men are victims as well. And in some ways, male victims have an extra barrier because there's that stereotypical view of a man who can't be a victim, who's bigger, taller, louder, has the financial resources. They, they are not the, quote, typical victim either that are extra tools for them to be abused. So um, please, if, if there are any men listening to us who feel that they are being abused or if anyone knows anyone, they can and should come to our agency just like anyone else. We're here to help them as well. And I would just like to be clear to those you know, individuals or organizations that might be listening to this conversation. Um, I, don't, I don't think that anything that you've said minimizes um, what men are experiencing as well. And I would uh, further say that if any of those individuals or organizations feel like they can offer um, anything constructive to this conversation or to help further the, um, you know, the, the, the thought of information and, um, and resources, I would invite you to contact me and be part of this discussion because this is not something that one conversation is going to um, fix or cover. Um, we could talk about this for hours at a time and still not scratch the surface of many of the issues and statistics and numbers and, and um, unfortunate uh, uh, occurrences that occur locally and on a national level. So um, I, I hope nobody out there feels like this conversation is is undercutting what everyone is going through um you mentioned this earlier and i wanted to talk about this and and this one this is a very difficult thing to talk about um because there is um i was going to say there seems to be but it's not a seem it's it's there is a sharp rise in domestic violence related homicides um, here in southeastern Wisconsin, and you more or less proved my point before I got to the question, which was you said Kenosha is number two in the state and Wisconsin is number eight in the country as far as domestic violence is concerned. Because um, I, I want to I make sure I'm wording this question correctly. Some people will point the blame at lawmakers. Some people will point the blame at um the criminal justice system or some combination of the two as far as why this continues to happen at the level that it's happening at and also is increasing the way that it's increasing. So where does the buck stop as far as lawmakers and the criminal justice is concerned? And also um, what do we need to do in order to facilitate more appropriate change or even legislation that reflects the severity of some of the things that are happening because, um, you know, there tends to be this thing where we don't, nothing affects us until we know the person that it, it happened to or it affects us personally. And sometimes we turn a blind eye to it or we've become so um, desensitized by all of this stuff as a society that we, you know, we turn on the news and we see domestic violence or um, domestic violence related homicide or something like that. And we just go on about our day. And that's 
absolutely awful. And, you know, I mentioned before that I used to work in, um, in probation and parole and the number of just in that time, the number of victims who died as a result of an abusive partner was staggering and all the more difficult because I see, um, probation agents who were in charge of, um, the supervision perhaps of the, of the victim or even the, um, the, uh, the abuser and just the toll that it takes on them personally. So, um, and sorry to, to sort of elongate this question. So again, where does the buck stop and what do we do or have to do in order to enact change and, and get more appropriate, um, uh, sentencing or, or um, punishments? There are a lot of things that need to change, but the bottom line is the buck stops with the community treating domestic violence as serious as it is. That means no tolerance for your friends, family members, brother, sister, somebody down the street you see being abusive. That means contacting your representatives and insisting that they pass fair funding laws. That means courts not giving a reduced sentence or a reduced plea deal for someone who has committed an act of domestic violence. That means news media not calling domestic violence, quote, a domestic dispute in the home. The number of times I have seen that in a news article drives me crazy. It's not a domestic dispute in a home. Somebody was committing a violent act against another person. It comes, so the, the buck stops with the community treating this for as serious as it actually is. Violence is violence, whether it happens in the home or between families or whether it happens in the street. If we saw a stranger attacking another stranger in the street, they would be arrested immediately, right? Sure. Why should it be any different if it's something that's happening in a home? I don't think law enforcement, sh- I know law enforcement, this is not a slide on KPD, they're wonderful. Any law enforcement officer should not be showing up and saying, well, maybe you guys just need to take a break separate for the night, have a, quote, cooling off period. So the buck stops with us treating it as seriously as it is and then putting the money where the money needs to go, which is providing services to those victims so they don't have need to go back to their abuser. That's my answer. Krista, what's your answer? Pretty much the same, honestly. I think it really change is going to start with you. Um, You know, if we have more people going to lawmakers asking for change. If we have more people going to the judges in your area and, you know, explaining how serious domestic violence is, that's where the change is going to start. It's going to start with you. It's not going to be something from the top down. We have to start at the bottom and work our way up. And, um, you know, like Jennifer said, the only way for the change to happen is to start in the community. And that's the bottom, but that's where we have to start. Um, And hopefully just getting awareness out there, um, even through this podcast, is what's going to start that change for somebody. I think, and, you know, to sort of unpack this a little more or maybe keep the question going, um, obviously, I don't disagree with the buck stops with us because I think there are a lot of things where we see something and we turn a blind eye to it because, again, we're either desensitized or we feel like, well, that's not my problem because it's not happening to me. Um, You talked about funding and um, having the resources for available for victims. But do you believe that maybe there should be funding or, um, well, yeah, should there be funding for maybe education in domestic violence? Because I feel like the only way that you get any kind of information as far as domestic violence or um, uh, sexual abuse or, or uh, child abuse tends to be after 
uh, a situation where it's too late or you are in um, in an, in, a, in a building like this or at a at a place where you would expect to see that kind of stuff, but never where you might think that maybe it should be or might be helpful because um, a previous episode I, I interviewed um, uh, the uh, organization called Just Live that deals with mental health and suicide prevention. And one of the discussions we had was about um, discussing suicide prevention and mental health in the school. Is this is domestic violence something that maybe should be more openly talked about or um, broached upon um, in the schools at a younger age? Absolutely. Yes. And there was very little outreach education and training to younger people about appropriate behavior, about relationship safety, and about things they may be experiencing in their own home. We have tried to do that and to infiltrate the school systems, but as you can imagine, there are a lot of barriers to that, including parent consent. Statistically, a child is 200% more likely to engage in domestic violence, either as a perpetrator or as the victim, if the child comes from a home having witnessed domestic violence as a perpetrator or a victim. So you see parent or other responsible adults in the home, that child is 200% more likely to repeat that cycle. So the earlier, ideally, we can get to that child and train that child or teach appropriate boundaries, um, ideally, um, things wouldn't escalate to the position that they are in now. I want to go back to your point about funding. Um, we are fortunate to be funded by the state of Wisconsin but that doesn't mean it can't be critical of them. And unfortunately, um, the funding I mentioned, which for the state of Wisconsin is just under $50 million, will go down to just under $14 million starting in October of 2024. That is for the entire state of Wisconsin. There will be programs shutting down. We're not gonna be one of them. We will fight as hard as we can and get funding from any other source we can to keep operations open here, but the government has made a decision not to continue funding those programs, and that is a very scary thing coming a year from now. So um, bigger picture for us is what are we going to do as a state for providing those necessary services for people who just need a shelter to go to? And unfortunately, the focus is going to be shifting to that for the next year, as opposed to preventative measures in schools and with younger ages and in outreach into the community, because the fire at our feet in the state is how are we going to have the money to keep these places open? So I just want to be clear. The funding that is received for the state, from the state, for programs like Women and Children's Horizon which is $50 million a year, which is divided amongst all of these organizations. It's not like you guys get a check for $50 million. No, (laughs) right. um, Is being reduced, because it's already too low, Right. it's being reduced to $14 million. Yes. Is there, I don't know how to ask this question except to say, is there a good reason why they found that cutting funding is necessary to the tune of 38, I'm sorry, $36 million less than what you guys were getting um, 
That is a very hard question to answer. The reason given is because the federal government that provides this funding has not allotted enough money to the state of Wisconsin to continue the funding. But it's much deeper than that. We have a budget with the state of Wisconsin. There were several line items in the state's budget to maximize the very large and historically large surplus that the state of Wisconsin has had. And none of those line items for victim service providers were passed. That would have been a nice measure to keep operations running at a financially doable, I would not say healthy, level for nonprofits like Horizons. Um, But the technical answer is the federal government has not allotted that money. But the deeper answer is the state of Wisconsin has not made victim service providers like Horizons a priority either. And I mean, this is a this is not a partisan issue. Right. Um, domestic violence affects people on all spectrums of politics and and re- uh, gender and race and and uh, religion and everything else. So this is the first that I've heard personally that this mm-hmm. is happening, and um, I'm not even quite sure how to take this news because my initial reaction is just to swear out loud and and be angry and i am angry and if you're listening to this you should be angry too and if you are a lawmaker listening to this and if you're not angry you should be angry um and you talked about the federal government and and i can probably venture a guess that this this was something that was probably buried in a bill that has nothing to do with Mm -hmm. funding these programs um, that all got looped together, and because um, they like to play political football, these things don't get funded the way that they should be, and they're not treated with the um, the sense of urgency that they should be. So they get completely, um, like I said, buried and um, uh, callously tossed aside like they don't matter. And then the loser in the situation are the people who desperately need programs right. like this in order to... Um, survive and to get the resources that they need. So, um, and you said that starts October of 24? October 2024. So our our grant cycles are October to September. This is the last year of the grant cycle, and we have all been warned by the state that starting October 2024, every single agency will have a cut in funding by at least 158 thousand dollars and many agencies will see significantly more or no funding at all and you know with it's not a it's not a partisan issue at all the fact is for a number of reasons and a lot of them the state and our service providers have been dealt those cards and now we have to deal with it the practical effect means we need more support from the community so that we can continue supporting our survivors in supporting our clients. So those DV homicide rates I mentioned and that Kirsten talked about don't go even higher the next time the Department of Justice does a report. Uh, it is absolutely infuriating that that this is even a topic of discussion. Um, and also because it's very easy for the state government to say, well, the federal government did it, and it's not us. And then it's easy for the federal government to say, well, that belongs to the states. That That's up to them to fund. We have nothing to do with that. And then, you know, we go back and forth and we play this game of tennis of who did this and who did that and who's to blame. But again, 
at the end of the day, the people who lose are the people who need these programs and need these resources that are put in place. And, you know, those politicians get to go home, they get to sleep at night, they get their, you know, their, their lifelong health care and their inflated salaries and their, their very cozy work schedules. Meanwhile, the people here in the trenches, regular people that wake up every day and go to work or whatever the case may be, the ones who are um, victims, the ones who are suffering at the hands of an abuser, are the ones that are dealt the bad hand. And I wish that that politicians and uh, legislators um, were held to a higher standard and more accountable and had more interaction with their um, constituents because the fact that something like this happens is beyond my comprehension and it could change. It, it probably just takes a couple of, of conversations between you know political parties to discuss this because, again, this isn't a partisan issue and yet because of partisan politics, this is the result of of what happens. So that is absolutely um, unfortunate. And so for those of you listening out there, um, lawmakers, citizens, um, just regular people, you should be talking to your aldermen, you should be talking to your congressmen, you should be talking to senators about making sure that this law changes, that the funding that is in place now um, stays and maybe even increases because it's not enough the way that it is now, but to be reduced to $14 million a year for every organization in the state is not enough. It's not enough. Um, good grief. That is um, gut-wrenching. Um, we spoke about this before um, a little bit, um, Kirsten, and... Um, uh, I mentioned having worked for um, the Department of Corrections, but also um, I didn't have a great childhood growing up. I was in the foster care system and um, suffered some child abuse, and some of my siblings did too. And um, I witnessed my mom and um, many females in my family be victims of domestic violence. Um, and I remember Women and Children's Horizons being an organization that they utilized services of because um, they didn't have resources or the means to, to get out of the cycle. And so I think about that, and, you know, again, those are things that are forever ingrained in your brain. You can never get rid of those images. And so that's why I mentioned before that um, domestic violence is a, a huge trigger for me because I was exposed to a lot of it as a child. And aside from the fact that children can be victims of abuse as well, um, what are some of the other things that, um, what are some of the other effects perhaps that children are having as a result of being victims or witnesses to domestic violence um, today? Yeah. So kind of as Jennifer mentioned before too, um, some of those children actually go on to become abusers themselves. Um, kind of back to that's all that they know, um, so they think that that's okay. Um, others do break that cycle and they don't become abusers. Um, some of them do become advocates. Um, but there is that cycle that if you are a child experiencing abuse, then you are 
potentially going to be an abuser or in an abusive relationship yourself when you're older. Um, so those things, unfortunately, are just um, out there. Um, and that's part of the reason why um, education needs to be implemented early on so that the way um, those cycles can stop and that those kids can um, kind of get out of that. What, um, and again, this is something that we kind of touched on before, but what are some of the myths surrounding domestic violence or domestic abuse that um, um, might be beneficial for the listeners to know um, in order to sort of uh, break some of the stigma? A, a big myth is there's no help for you. You're not worthy of help. This is the words of an abuser. No one's going to help you. They're not there for you. They have some other motivation. You don't look like a victim. No one will believe you. Those kinds of things. Um, if you hear those, ignore them. Call us. We have a 24-hour-a-day, every single day of the year hotline, 262-652-9900. So for victims, a big myth is there's no help for you. From a community perspective, there are a lot of myths. One, as we started the podcast with, abuse isn't abuse unless it's physical. Abuse only happens to poor, uneducated people. Abuse is a female-only issue. Abuse doesn't happen for rich people. Those are all myths. And as we talked about, abuse can happen to anyone at any time, no matter what your background is. In terms of the community and people we know or people we don't know, what can we say to people out there as far as how can we or they help anyone that they think might be um, a victim of domestic abuse or domestic violence? Yeah, so um, I think for me personally, one of the biggest things is just start by believing. If somebody comes to you and says, um, you know, my partner is abusing me, don't say, well, are they hitting you? Or, well, were they under the influence of something? A qualifier. Yes. Just start by believing. Um, no matter what, if somebody comes to you, okay, how can I help? Be that person to help them out. Um, get them connected. Um, if you personally don't think that you can handle helping them, find a local agency like Horizons who can help. Um, whether that's in Kenosha, if you need Illinois, I mean, you can Google search anything and there will be people there to help. So um, I personally just always tell people just start by believing. Um, as we've said multiple times, anybody can be the victim of abuse. So don't let that be a qualifier. And if you don't know what agency to call, call any agency. The fact is we are all connected. Someone can call Horizons at 2 a.m. on a Saturday. If they're in California, we're going to find a place in California that can help them. So start by believing, absolutely. Um, another thing for people who are at a serious homicidal risk is a very short lethality assessment. So what do we mean by that? If someone comes to you and discloses that they're being abused, in addition to not saying, why don't you leave, please don't say that. They, they know they need to leave. That's why they're talking to you. Don't make them feel worse about it. But you would want to ask, what happened and how long ago was it? If someone describes behavior that's escalating, it went from, well, they were yelling to 
they threw a glass by me, to they slammed a door, to they shoved me. Those escalating behaviors are, are what we call lethality risks would suggest that that, that abuse is going to reach a homicidal level. Now, that does not mean if someone says, well, it's only verbal, that you don't treat it seriously. But your question then is, do we need to go to the police, like now? Do I need to get you to a shelter immediately? Or can you come over with me and we're going to make some phone calls? Start by believing is the biggest thing. There are a lot of takeaways I want people to have from your podcast. Start by believing is one of them. Someone says that they're being abused, believe them. And if you want to take on the task of helping them, which is a beautiful task to take on, that doesn't mean you're paying for things financially. It doesn't mean you're outing yourself. It doesn't mean you're becoming a victim and a witness in court. It's simply making a phone call or giving them a number to call. And if it's not the right agency, we'll find the agency that can help them. Sure. Um, you talked about, um, obviously, uh, don't ask them, oh, is it abuse or, you know. Um, so in that spirit, we've seen it many times, and I'm sure you guys um, deal with it. Um, instances where someone who is in grave danger is trying to communicate the fact that they're in danger. Um, maybe it's gotten to the, the level of homicidal, and they're trying to articulate it in a way um, to let someone know that they need help without necessarily letting their um their abuser know that they are yeah. alerting someone for help so along those lines what are some of the things that we as um people um who love victims or care about victims what are some of the things that we should avoid doing in those instances to um help keep them safe in a situation where they are in grave danger do not ever confront the abuser resist the urge to be the fix-it person. I'm going to go tell them not to do this, or I'm going to go ask them what happened, because that can be homicidal. Uh, uh, an abuser is not going to say to you, my bad, I'm sorry, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. They're going to take it out on the victim. So absolutely never, ever, ever, ever confront the abuser. That's not your role, and you can very well make it worse for the victim. Um, there are a lot of ways that victims can seek out help that is quiet and confidential. Websites like Horizons have quick quick turnoff pages, so there'll be no search. Your abuser won't be able to track where they were on a phone or on a computer. Um, there are awareness cards that are very small that you can tuck into a purse or a chapstick tube with phone numbers on it. Um, some of it is safety planning, meaning before you make a decision to leave, you're going to talk with an advocate over the phone or by video or at the McDonald's parking lot, wherever it is, to get a plan in place that might include changing your phone number, changing your address, getting a protective order. So there are steps in place. There are specialized steps, which is why from a community perspective, the best thing you can do is refer them to an agency that does this work full time as well. Um. We've spent a lot of time talking about um, the statistics, some of the uglier sides of of um, this this sort of uh, again blight or uh, epidemic that this country faces. Um, so I want to speak in the positive um, just a little bit because we haven't really um, gone into a lot of depth about um, 
this agency and the things that you guys do on a day-to-day basis. So um, what are some of the programs and resources that you guys offer that um, anyone who's listening might um, be able to take advantage of? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, I do the rapid rehousing. So um, we do offer rental assistance to our clients um, if they are, um, you know, appropriate for the program for up to 24 months um, to help them get on their feet. Um, I also do the coordinated coordinated entry list. Um, So that, again, um, is putting people onto a list who are homeless. Um, And specifically with women and children, it's called No Wrong Door. There are other agencies in Kenosha who handle this list too. Um, But if you are not a victim of domestic violence and just experiencing homelessness and come to us, we can still put you on that list. So um, that is something good um, just to help Again, we also have other things like Jennifer has mentioned, shelter, legal advocates um, who can also help, and I'm sure she can speak more on all of that too. Right. So we, our agency can provide all needs for a client. Every single thing, a client can come here with nothing at all, and we can provide all of their needs for them. They have, we have an emergency shelter, all of their meals. They need clothing. We got that. They need transportation. We've got that. They need a lawyer. We've got lawyers. They need therapy. We've got a therapist with no wait list. They want a support group. We've got that. They want to relocate. We work with Angel Flight and Moms for Movers, two men in a truck. They will relocate those clients for free. They need a cell phone. We've got that. They need um, connections with agencies to get them on food share or badger care, change their address, change their name, help them file for divorce. We provide every single need for that client completely free, irrespective of their income. If someone comes here with zero dollars or someone comes here with a million dollars in the bank, they will get the same quality of service, irrespective of their income, literally down to what kind of toiletries do you need on a particular day? They can come to us with nothing at all, and we can provide all of those needs to them. And again, this is 100% completely confidential. Completely confidential. And we are also never, ever full at our shelter, which is also a myth. Um, and I would not say that every shelter in Wisconsin operates the way we do. Some victims will call around and they will get told, no, we don't have space for you. Our agency has made an intentional decision that if someone qualifies for our shelter, if they are actively fleeing abuse and we do not have a room for them, we will pay for a hotel for them until we do. We will never turn a client away who qualifies for our services. That is unique in the state. I'm very proud of that, that our agency does it. It's not easy. It makes the funding cut coming up in next October very, very scary for us. But we will provide all of those needs, food, clothing, shelter, legal support, emergency financial assistance, whatever we can to keep that victim from going back to their abuser. Um, Are there volunteer opportunities available? How can people get involved if they want to help out with the mission? Yes, so we do have a lot of volunteer opportunities, um, especially with DV Month, we have um, many. We actually do have a volunteer coordinator. Um, so I 
think Jennifer might know his phone number um, or how to contact him. So if you do want to volunteer for us, um, we do have opportunities and he'll be able to hook you up with those. Um, I know we just recently had people come in to stuff um, chapstick tubes with um, our information to hand out. So that way it was a discreet way for people to have our information on them without an abuser possibly knowing. So there's always something here if somebody wants to volunteer. Anyone who's interested in volunteering or learning more can call our main office number, which is 262-656-3500. We are blessed with volunteers throughout the year who do a lot of things. Some of them donate supplies. Some of them work at our thrift shop, Nifty Thrifty, which if you have not been there please go it's a 16,000 square foot thrift shop that we own it's got a lot of cool stuff all donated by the community and all of the proceeds come directly back to our clients our clients also shop there for free um, we have cl- volunteers who donate their time their legal services their therapy they we have life coaches um, some people come because they want to do a day of service and they'll paint a room um, or they'll help someone move into their apartment through Kirsten's program um, our our belief is if you have a calling to volunteer, we'll find a project for you to do. So you don't have to call us with the project already lined out. If you know that you want to volunteer in some way, we can put you to work. Um, apropos, I was going to ask about Nifty Thrifty because I've, ne- I've never shopped there before, but I see um, uh, people talk about it all the time. Um, as far as if people want to donate things for you guys to sell, what do they need to do in order to, like, do you guys have a drop-off time or can people drop things off after hours? How does that work? Depends on who you're asking. Okay. If you ask the store, they will say that they have donation hours. And I love our store. So we try to keep our donation times on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday so that we give our staff two days a week to just declutter and go through all of the things that we have donated but the fact is if you want to donate we're not going to turn you away so it could be please don't come at 2 a.m on saturday but if that's the only opportunity you have call us and we'll figure it out we have uh, donation um, attendants who help unload things Um, we don't often do pickup but we have done furniture pickup before Um, we take a lot of clothing and other all kinds of items and what i think is unique about nifty thrifty well there are a lot of things it's just a cool place to go but one of the unique things is we don't we don't reject donations because we work with a recycling program. So if some clothes are maybe questionable and you're not quite sure if they should be donated or not, bring them anyway because we can donate them and turn them into cash for our clients. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you guys provide a lot of um, things for um, victims, whether it be toiletries or clothing or um, items of a personal nature. So I assume that you guys have sort of a a wish list, as it were, yeah. of of desperately needed things that you probably need on a regular basis yes. or maybe some things you need right now. What yes. are some of the things that um, you can uh, let the people know that you are in always in need of or maybe need right now? Yes. So specifically to our shelter, we are always in need of pillows, blankets, sheets, and towels. When a client comes to our shelter, we give them all fresh, brand new things. And a lot of times they take them with them. And that's okay. So you're already coming from a home to a communal living space. We don't want you having the grungy pillow and the tattered blanket and the old towels, right? So we house 
almost 2,000 unduplicated people per year at our shelter. So that means if someone comes and then they go back to their abuser and then they come back to us, we don't count them twice. And that happens a lot. So almost 2,000 per year individual people coming into our shelter who need blankets, towels, sheets, pillows. So we always, always have a need for that. Um, We always have a need for toiletries, shampoos, toothpaste, because these people often are coming directly from the hospital or from the streets. They don't have they don't have time to pack their favorite, you know, laundry detergent and shampoo. Um, so we have to we want to make sure that their stay is as comfortable and nice. We try to give them quality products so they don't feel needy. We want them to feel encouraged. And if that means you know, they get the good toothbrush, right? They get the good pillow so they don't already feel bad about a bad situation. So we have a wish list that's posted to our website, wchkenosha.org, that we update, but you're always going to see those things on that list. Um, if someone wants to donate any of those um, items or sundries, is it something that they bring here to um, your main location or can they drop, drop drop it off at nifty thrifty or they can do either okay they can they can bring them right to our office monday to friday or just call ahead and there's a good chance jennifer or kirsten or somebody is here on the weekend um or they can take it to nifty thrifty just let us know where you want it to go and we are going to honor your intent and i'm assuming that you also accept financial donations as Absolutely. well if people want to make financial donations um do you have a way for people to donate, say, through PayPal or Venmo or anything like that where someone can electronically donate in in, um, in perpetuity? We do. So we on our website, wchkenosha.org, we have an electronic payment option. You can donate by PayPal as a one-time payment or as a recurring payment. We also have a cash app because the young ones told me that was cool. <laughs> so don't ask me the name. We might have to share that later, but if you look us up, it may be online, um, but we, we use PayPal. Um, we have clients who are, sorry, well, some clients have actually donated to us. We have donors who call and they do a pay by phone, by credit card. We have donors who send in a check, they'll bring in cash. And with the cool thing about donations, however you want to do it, whether it's time, stuff, um, spreading our, our, our word and getting outreach out there or money, it all matters to us, and you can determine where it goes. So if you want to make a financial donation and you want it to be for shelter only, we're going to honor that intent. If you want to make a donation and you want it to be for therapy only, we will honor that intent as well. Um, do you have any um, – I know that you guys hold a lot of different events throughout the year and partner with different um, community organizations and such. Do you have any upcoming events or um, – events that you hold annually or whatever the case may be that um, the folks should know about? We do. So um, we have several events posted on our website and on our Facebook account. We up the update that regularly as we have more events and things coming up. Um, October 20... Uh-oh, I gotta look at my calendar. It's the 26th or the 28th. Kate, who's our marketing person, is probably yelling at me right now. The 28th is a Saturday. <laughs> okay, the so 26th the 26th. is a Thursday. The 26th is our annual um, awareness lunch and award ceremony. It's at the Kenosha Country Club this year. Information about that is on our website. For the month of October, we're also doing free lunch and learn sessions. So if there's an agency, an employer, or a group, if you want to get together over a lunch virtually or in person, let us talk to you about domestic violence awareness. We'll bring the snacks. Um, we can talk 
talk about that, but really any time in the year that you want to do that. It doesn't have to be limited to October. Um, we have uh, in, in December, on December 6th, we have a, an event um, in downtown Kenosha that's a lunch and learn as well about our nonprofit for other people to come and hear more about us. Um, holiday time is pretty busy with adoptive family and folks wanting to donate to our sheltered kiddos. So there's a lot of things that kind of come up and go on the fly, but our next big fundraiser um, will be in February for Mardi Gras is your big gala so those of you who want to get all dressed up and donate to a good cause but have some fun as well you can check out our website because the date and all the details will be coming up soon fantastic your um your educational stuff like your lunch and learns and stuff um do you offer a hybrid opportunity so if someone can't make it physically do you have the opportunity so someone can connect like through zoom or whatever absolutely they're all hybrid they're all recorded and they are all 100 percent free so absolutely we will come out to you or we will log in virtually or we will do both so long as we can get that message out to an audience, we're going to do that. But if they don't come in person, they miss out on the snacks, and that's... You know what? <laughs> that's that's the, the price you pay is the good snacky snacks and the Twizzlers from Quick Trip. <laughs> I um, Social media is a huge thing for um, all of mankind, and I know that you guys have a pretty big presence on Facebook. Um, I've seen you, Jennifer, on yeah. a lot of the Facebook live videos and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, outside of people following you on Facebook, do you have any other social media accounts that people can follow you on to keep up with the things that you guys are doing? We do. So, and please go follow them because we, we are now on all the social medias, right? So we got a TikTok. You're not going to see staff dancing because I haven't gotten to that yet. But Kirsten, <laughs> maybe Kirsten will be our first dancer. Um, I'm going to hold you to that. That'll be a sight to see. <laughs> all right. Not very coordinated. We have Instagram, which has a lot of like personal quotes and memes and kind of pep talk kind of things. Um, we have a LinkedIn account, which we are building right now to provide more educational resources and sure. information about the budget cuts that are coming up and those kinds of things so our handle is you is always wch kenosha so look those up if you see us on instagram or um tiktok facebook we don't have a snapchat but uh all of the the other avenues that you can reach us on are all also shared on facebook so if you go there and check us out you can see all the handles and links to all the other accounts and you know it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek we like to be fun and and um, share information and be inspirational on that social media. But I will, what I will tell you from the director's chair, because I run the reports for how people heard about us, mm -hmm. a lot of it comes from social media. Sure. They saw a sharing of a post and they looked at our website and said, I got to call that person. Or they saw a card, an awareness card in a gas station bathroom and they took it and they called. So just following and sharing our message, which is free to you, um, is a big deal to us and to the people that we serve. Yeah, and I, 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 I want to stress that too because I, um, anytime I see a post from you guys, I share it. It doesn't even matter what it is, I share it because I think the more you can um, put the information out there for others to see, the more the information is going to get out there. That's the only way it's going to happen. So it literally costs you nothing to share a post. It takes less than a couple of seconds to do so. And by doing so, you are um, exposing people who may not have the opportunity to see the information to that information and that might save a life it might change a life and i think it's really important that people you know I, i've seen lots of um arbitrary and silly things shared on social media so why not share something that is um life-changing or life-altering or can help with um, getting the message across to people um 
if either of you or both of you are comfortable, um, I'd like to pose um, sort of to close this up unless there's um, anything afterward that you guys want to talk about. Um, I would like um, for you to essentially pretend that um, on the other end of this conversation is a person who is a victim and um, maybe is afraid or nervous or um, scared or um, terrified about the prospect of reporting their abuse. Um, they're scared because of the things that society has told them or their abuser has told them, and they are coming to you for help. So I would like you to imagine that you are addressing that one person or those two people who maybe could use the encouragement or um, the wherewithal in order to sort of take the leap forward and um, get on the course of changing their life because they want to get out of that cycle. I'll start. What I would say to that person, we believe you, you are strong, and we are here to help you. You can call us 24 hours a day, and if you can't call, you can come here, just walk here. Our address, 2525 63rd Street. Our phone number, 262-652-9900. It will get better. There is a lot of support, and we know it's scary, but we believe you, and we're here to help. That is what I would tell that person. And of everything we've talked about, that's what I want to be the biggest takeaway from your podcast. Um, so I think for me, I would just want somebody to know that um, while the unknown is scary, the biggest step that you can take and the best step that you can take for yourself is leaving your abuser. Um, there are people here on the other side who are going to believe you, who are going to be here every step of the way to make sure that you are okay. And together we can go ahead and pick up those pieces and make sure that moving forward you are in a stable environment and in a healthy environment and that you have healthy relationships with everybody. Um, and, you know, like Jennifer said, um, no matter how you get here, if you have to call us, walk, anything, we are here for you 24-7. Um, I can't say thank you enough to the two of you. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's like 7.30 right now, and you guys have probably worked a long day, and I've worked a long day. And I appreciate that the two of you took the time out to stick around and have this conversation because, again, a conversation like this is one that needs to be had all over the place. And if this podcast can help one person, can get information to one person and save one person, um, then I feel like it's done its job. But I also want to extend a um, open-ended invitation to Women and Children's Horizons to be on this podcast at any time that they would like, whether it's you, Jennifer, you, Kirsten, or anybody, um, because I feel like, again, these are conversations that need to be had, and especially um, perhaps sooner rather than later, a conversation about that funding being cut and how we can change and who we can talk to. And if there's anybody out there who has the power of the pen, 
um, to arrange a conversation between this organization and a lawmaker or someone who can talk to a lawmaker, please get a hold of me because um, time is running out and organizations like this are going to suffer and um, be unfunded and defunded and closed down completely because this bill is going through. And then we're going to have more and more people pop up and probably people you know pop up on the news or newspaper or social media as someone who is the victim of a homicide because they didn't have access to these resources and programs that have are already underfunded that have had their funding completely cut. So um, I hope that the next time we have a conversation that uh, that it's a constructive one and we can have someone here that is um, willing to maybe help um, move the needle a little bit and help us try to facilitate um, change because the fact that uh, that funding is being cut is is um, is dangerous. It and, sure is and scary. The, we will take you up on that offer. We will be back. And you are spot on. Everyone either is or knows a victim of domestic violence. That is a fact. So if we're not providing services, you or someone you know will be affected. We would love to come back and have that conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your space with us and letting us get this message out to survivors. Absolutely. And also, I will get this episode posted um, tonight. Um, and in addition, I will make sure that there are um, uh, the information we've talked about, the links um, to uh, the website, um, the social media, the phone numbers, um, the wish list, everything that uh, can possibly be of use or service to uh, anyone out there. I will make sure to include that information um, and I will get it on uh, uh, social media uh, sometime uh, tonight. So be on the lookout for the episode. Um, and my thanks again to Jennifer Payne, Executive Director, and uh, Kirsten Sova, who is the um, rehoming... Rapid Rehousing Ra- Coordinator. Rapid Rehousing It's Coordinator. a mouthful, I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to remember it, um, and I'm sorry that I didn't, but I, I will not forget next time. Um, ladies, anything else before we go? Thank you so much for your time, and don't forget, if you or someone you know has a question, call our hotline, 262-652-9900, 24 hours a day. And... Uh, just one more thing for you folks out there. The conversation we just had is proof that there are people and organizations in this world who care about you and your well-being. You are not alone. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence or the threat of domestic violence, you can contact the great folks here at Women and Children Horizons. The helpline is 800-853-3503. The hotline local number is 262 652 9900 or of course you can visit them at wchkenosha.org again thanks for listening be safe and we'll see you next time 